Failure is not an option. But why can't it be? Too often, failure is a negative. We're conditioned to the binary options of either failure or success. Failure is a lot more nuanced. It can even be intentional to test things out. Peter Adrians is a professor of engineering, finance, and entrepreneurship at the University of Michigan, working currently on financial innovation and risk analytics for industrial renewal. Join us as Professor Adrians tells three short stories from his career on failure, risk-taking, and the lessons learned to achieve positive outcomes. Uh, so it's going to be a little lighter. Don't worry, I'm not going to talk about environmental finance and infrastructure finance and things like that. This is not a technical presentation. Faculty are humans too, right? <laughs> I mean, we got our own choices to make, we got decisions to make, and in fact, in finance, for those of you that either are in the stock market or another kind of finance, most of the decisions are based on what we call intangibles. It's not based on metrics, it's not based on money, it's not based on return, it's not based on profits, it's on other stuff, intangibles, things like sentiment and feelings. I mean, things that cannot be easily grasped or quantified. Since the 1980s, when data have moved into the space where we are now, where we're inundated by text-based data, non-text-based data, and metrics, and all sorts of stuff, it's actually the softer stuff, the sentiment stuff, the feeling stuff, the perceptions that are actually a big part of what create value. Now, why am I saying this? It's about you and me. A lot of our decisions and our value are not driven by, or should not be driven by, how much money we bring in, how many, how many students we teach, how many PhDs we graduate, how many hours we work. A lot of it is the intangibles. It's the connections that we make across departments, across schools, and in our communities. And I'm going to tell you three stories and three fables that entirely relate a side of me that even the staff from Civil and Environmental Engineering don't know about me, so you'll learn a thing or two. So just to quote Sir John Bannum, Director General of the Confederation of British Industries, said, we are in danger of valuing those things that we can most accurately measure, which often means that we are probably precisely wrong instead of approximately right. And a lot of this goes, I mean, we're, we're so, so inundated with data that the, the thought is all the value is in the data. Now, speaking a little bit against my own research, a lot of which is driven by data, but a lot of it is sentiment. I just spent three days in New York talking to City and Credit Suisse and everybody else. You talk to all these finance folks, and all they talk about is not profit and is not numbers. It's, yeah, we'll have to see how this works in the community. How are the politicians going to react? How are the people going to react? So a lot of it is about softer stuff. And I'm going to talk about decisions around failure and risk in my world. So the three failure fables. I've been here at the college for 27 years when I was first hired. Our then chair said, Peter, the average tenure here in the College of Engineering at U of M is 15 years. But I'm a bioengineer by training. I'm originally from Belgium. I came to University of California, Riverside and UCLA. Did my research over there. I was at Stanford as a postdoc. and been here since 1992. I have moved in those 27 years from dealing with bioengineering stuff to dealing with infrastructure finance in the financial markets. So how do soft connections, decisions, things that you make happenstance, how does that influence how one takes risks, how one moves forward, how you shift careers, how you shift your interest? So I'm going to tell you three stories, three fables. And I'm going to start with one that is probably familiar to many of you. And these are the three princes of Serendip. It came out of Serendipo. Actually, there is no country like that. I mean, it is, it is a fable. It is a fairy tale. 
But most of you know the word serendipity. Now, serendipity, when we talk about serendipity, often it's luck or it's happenstance or it is uh, something that happens where you don't expect it. I mean, that, that's kind of how we talk about it. In reality, when you read the actual fable, it is as much about those accidental discoveries as it is about being able to read the breadcrumbs, small clues, small clues that help you infer, you know, maybe solutions to an answer. I'm going to do this chronologically. I'm going to take us back all the way to 1990, 1991, when I was still at Stanford University. It was pretty close to being done with my postdoc. I was working in a new field, sort of called a flask to field, where essentially we take laboratory discoveries and we take them out in the field and see whether they actually work. Right? Now this is commonplace, but back then that wasn't. So I was at a point there at the end where I was really thinking I wanted to go into the corporate world. I knew enough, I guess, from my science and my engineering that I thought I could have public impact by going into corporate world or consulting, whatever you want to call it. And in fact, I had received an offer from a company to be relocated to Budapest. The Berlin Wall had to come down in 1989, 1990, and all the waste, I guess, that the West had dumped behind you know, the Iron Curtain since 1953, when they built it, of course, you opened up the wall, ha, there it all is, right? So it all came back at us and said, Peter, we need people that can speak Russian. And I learned a little bit when uh, Gorbachev was the then <laughs> last chairman of the, uh, of the uh, um, Central Committee in, in, in Russia. I learned it actually in Riverside. Suddenly everybody in California, where maybe here too, everyone was learning Russian. So anyhow, I learned Russian too. So you know some Russian, you understand the environment, we're going to send you to Budapest, and you're going to take care of all the stuff that comes through the wall. I said, awesome. What a fantastic challenge. <laughs> One of my last meetings, uh, um, scientific meetings that I went to uh, as, a, as a postdoc was in Dallas, Texas. The American Society for Microbiology was hosting a meeting and was giving a presentation. I went down there with a postdoc and somebody else from my lab, and we stayed in a hotel that was not one of the conference hotels, we on the outside doing things on the cheap. And I go down for breakfast, and I've been taking in the breakfast buffet, and what do I see? We ended up in a hotel at the Star Trek convention. <laughs> I said, seriously? And everywhere, I mean, everywhere you looked around, they said, who are these people? I mean, it's not, I don't mean it in a denigrating way. I just meant that, I mean, who are they? I mean, are they salespeople? Are they, uh, are they technicians? Are they, I mean, are they CEOs of companies? Are they independent business owners? I mean, who are the people that are dressed up like that and go to a Star Trek convention? Clearly people that love Star Trek. I love Star Trek too, but I, I don't dress up when I go to the buffet in a hotel. So, <laughs> so we're talking about that and, you know, making a little bit uh, light of it. And then we found out that in the afternoon, Leonard Nimoy was going to speak in the ballroom of that hotel. So we're kind of looking at each other. I said, scientific panel... Leonard Nimoy. Uh, a coffee later, we said, how about we just sort of break the mold and we're going to go watch Nimoy. 2,000 people packed in a ballroom in the afternoon. We went to go listen to, they had questions, questions about life for him. It's fascinating. It's totally a fascinating uh, experiment to, to, to go to these conventions. And, and in some ways, I mean, maybe it was a little bit star, starstruck, but on the other hand, it was really also about what on earth are they going to ask him and how does he respond, right? And those were the days, if you recall, 1991 was the first Gulf War. So there was a lot of conversation about the first Gulf War and whatnot. 
Unfortunately for him, there was no Space Force yet at that time. <laughs> so, so, I mean, I was listening to the conversations, to the responses and whatnot, and kind of getting into a giddy mood a little bit. I mean, clearly, I was totally out of my science mood. I was not even thinking about my talk or my poster. That evening, we met up with a bunch of different people from Stanford and Berkeley and all, the, all our peer institutions in the Dallas Alley. I just read that the Dallas Alley isn't anymore what it used to be, but back then it was something, an outdoor kind of marketplace with bars and music and stages and whatnot. And I'm sitting with a bunch of the researchers and all, I was ta- all they were talking about was all the results and the stuff that they heard at the conference and all I was talking about was the Star Trek convention. <laughs> so I went said, okay, Peter, it's time for you to go get beer. I was walking across the stage still early in the evening, a band was playing, the dance floor was completely empty. So I walk over to, to the bar, which was on the other side, and they launch into Gloria Van Morrison. I bet you weren't expecting them to talk either. <laughs> so I love Van Morrison, and I like the song Gloria. So I stopped in my tracks, I turned around, I went in the middle of the dance floor and started dancing. <laughs> I was clearly taking a risk. I was a little bit, you know, I was in a giddy mood, clearly. It only took me about 15 to 30 seconds and I saw somebody sort of looking from one of the tables and kind of stretching. It was this guy. He comes over to me, he stands opposite of me, and he starts dancing with me. <laughs> and I didn't know him. Uh, I said, I'm Tim Vogel. Tim Vogel at that time was an assistant professor of civil and environmental engineering, Tom, right, remember him, in at University of Michigan. We, t- we danced, went through the dance, he introduced himself, whatever. <laughs> I said, let's go get a, a shot of something. And we suddenly said, I'm going to go on sabbatical, actually on a leave of absence. And I am not going to come back, but my department doesn't know yet. <laughs> <laughs> but based on the vibe we have over here, I think you would be a great replacement for me. <laughs> so what kind of stuff do you do at Michigan in your department? So, you know, we just launched in this whole flask to field and they're looking for new people that are doing sort of that field research. And I said, awesome. You know, next thing I knew, I actually went, came down for an interview. He led me around. Nobody knows now, all of you here know, but you know, we figured after 30 years, it's okay. <laughs> well, it wasn't what happens in Dallas stays in Dallas. I mean, in this case, so now you know too. So but basically, the next step was I was actually then came to CE. I danced my way to U of M. Right? And have been working, and some of you are familiar with that. A lot of work, we had just started all this research that was somewhat similar to what I was doing at Stanford, but it was part of this new inception of getting the faculty out in the field, start doing sediment analysis, groundwater analysis, develop environmental sensors, do all sorts of very cool stuff. Essentially, the stuff that I was hoping to do with this company. I ended up saying no to the company, and I came to U of M. Now, I would not have come to U of M if it weren't for the Star Trek convention, go sit in the room with 2,000 somewhat like-minded, somewhat, listening to Leonard Nimoy, being on a dance floor, dancing with Tim Vogel, <laughs> who was in France, by the way. I mean, he left for France. He worked for Rompelan, a chemical company. So this is a story of serendipity. It has nothing to do, I was not researching what are the research dollars at U of M. I mean, how much is, is available in terms of startup money? Uh, uh, how many professors are in the department? How many papers are they published? Do we, do we recruit from the top tier graduate students? I wasn't looking at any of those metrics. None. 
Afterwards, it sort of became a thing, right, when I got to know everybody else. What is the vibe? Who are the people? You know, I knew nothing. But based on that conversation, I said, cool, I'll fill in for you, and then we'll see where it goes. 27 years later, that's where it went, right? So you just never know. But sometimes placing yourself into a different situation may just result in things that you cannot anticipate. And reading these little very fine breadcrumbs sort of help in directing a particular decision. I took a risk. I had a pretty much a guarantee, a job that was paying more than I was paid as assistant professor coming into U of M to actually go to Budapest. I took a risk by going on the dance floor. <laughs> but, but things happen, and things happen in a positive way. I'm going to move into story number two. Fast forward a little bit. $25 million later, roughly, a lot of research and development, a lot of field sites, a lot of trips, a lot of very exciting projects and programs. And this story is based on a book. Anybody here know Richard Feynman? Richard Feynman, the physicist, right? Nobel Prize laureate, uh, one of the fathers of quantum mechanics or quantum electromechanics. And he wrote a book. He wrote a lot of like, sort of semi-funny semi books, I guess, if you will. And one of them was, what do you care what other people think? Richard Feynman, some of you may know him or know of him when they tried to solve the problem of the uh, space shuttle Challenger, I guess, when that exploded. He was the one that actually found the solution. He had tons of engineers sitting around the room. He's the physicist, right? And everybody was explaining, I guess, what the percent failure rate was of each component of the rockets and of the boosters and of every other engineered piece of it. And during that meeting, and people didn't really see it, he took a, a, a rubber ring. You probably know that story, right? And he put it in one of the, he took it, he said, give me a picture with a lot of ice in it. Put a picture with ice, put the rubber ring in that, and basically let that sit for the entire meeting. And so everybody was debating where the failure rate was. So we have all these metrics and all these individual components. The question is, what is the failure rate of the overall thing? At the end of the meeting, he said, Richard, what do you think? And he pulled that rubber ring out, and he put his fingers around it, and it cracked. So this was your problem. It's not a metric. It was basically too cold overnight, and that rubber had lost some of its elasticity, so it could not create an actual good seal between the hydrogen and the oxygen. And when these two mix, it's not a good thing. He wrote this book, and so a couple of things that come out of this. Uh, it says, leave the door to the unknown open. In fact, step through it once in a while. Think different, all right? So question everything. He was an odd character in, in terms of what do you care what other people think also, that he would occasionally disappear in the woods. He was a Caltech. Disappear in the woods, it would basically just paint his body with a couple of buddies of him and they would play on the tam-tams in the woods and do all sorts of weird things. So, so that actually helps, and that helps me as well. I mean, not clearly not as renowned, but it has nothing to do with us to be, how do you step through a door and accept the consequences by not caring what anybody else thinks? What I'm saying is, so the question was for me, am I going to continue doing my applied research, my work in the field? Right? And I'd been doing this now, $25 million, and very few patents. There was a very low acceptance rates of these technologies. And it was in those days, Office of Technology Transfer was very different, and just sort of the whole permeation. There was still the 1990s, earlier 1990s. This wasn't the IT industry either. So I guess the acceptance of and the adoption of new technology in the field was very slow. So clearly, I mean, there was no Tesla to be found in anything that I was doing over here. I came across... A happenstance meeting with somebody and said, Peter, you know that the market really does not care about your technology, right? I said, okay. <laughs> what they care about or what the market needs is a business model that you need to build around your technology. 
The technology in and by itself is worthless. The model, the way on how you try to sell that, distribute, it, distribute that and whatnot in a product, that is what's important. I said, I have no idea what you just said, but I'm gonna learn. So I had a sabbatical coming up, 2006, and actually I decided to stay local. I went over, to, and that's where my whole business school story started. So I wrote to uh, Tim Faley, who was at that time the managing director of the Zillow Institute for Entrepreneurial Studies, at that time the only entrepreneurship institute on campus. There was no center for entrepreneurship yet. And uh, I said, you know, I want to immerse myself in entrepreneurship. I want to understand how these business models work so I can figure out how to sell my environmental technologies that I've been developing for the last 15 years and $25 million, giving back to society. Right? And 20 minutes later, I said, okay, welcome aboard. I went there. I said, okay, Tim, so how do I start? He said, I have absolutely no idea. <laughs> so what do you mean you have no idea? I said, no, I mean, how can we tell you what it is what you need if you don't even know what it is what you need? Customer discovery 101, right? That is, I can't tell you where you should start because I don't know where your knowledge ends. So I essentially ended up spending time at the institute the first year. He said, we can't teach you until we understand what your needs are. Immerse yourself, figure out what you want answered. And it became the start of a 10-year appointment in the business school as professor of entrepreneurship, which I still hold. Within the first year, we started clean tech entrepreneurship as, far, as far, uh, part of the uh, Wolverine Venture Fund and the Lurie Commercialization Fund. But it really shifted the core skill sets that I needed. I was in a lab, I was looking at microscopes, I was you know, plating out petri dishes, I was taking microbes in the field, I was injecting them in the field, I was detecting them in the field, and I suddenly the activities I need to look at, value creation was business models, it was the whole money side of the equation. The whole Bloomberg and fact set and investor and all that, that side of the equation. It's a very, very different value proposition than the engineering and the science skill sets that I had before. Right? So it did take me a while to do this, but I started teaching courses. To date, we've taught over a thousand students in entrepreneurship and finance launched three companies. I was a founding board member of the Center for Entrepreneurship, but I want to draw your attention to the last line. Because I had left the College of Engineering during a sabbatical and I stayed with a partial appointment in the Ross School of Business. I was no longer really viewed as participating in my department working with my colleagues. Before I left for the, the Ross School of Business, Tom, I mean, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I guess from the top floor and the bottom floor, it was like a lot of space, a lot of real estate, a lot of students. We got postdocs and technicians and whatnot, and I gave all of it up to pursue this. I mean, not from one day to the next. So I ranked the bottom for CEE merit review or merit increases for the next five, six, seven years. I said, Peter, we really can't argue for any increases for you because you're not contributing to this department. But boy, what I learned and how I thought differently about what I was doing before and say, these business models I can start applying. I was teaching clean tech entrepreneurship courses to College of Engineering students. I'm still teaching this term, year 12, entrepreneurial business fundamentals for scientists and engineers, a very different mindset of thinking about entrepreneurship. I'm teaching finance courses. I completely shifted and it sort of happened over time. Now, this was a what do you care what other people think kind of moment because I said, I am going to do this. I want to understand how business and finance and business models work, then the impact. But there is, of course, a good story that ties into this, and that is number three, the Medici effect. 
This is a book, I actually bought it in 2007, didn't read in probably until 2008. Any of you heard of this one? So the Medici family, of course, they weren't a very nice family. Those of you who've seen the HBO, whatever, <laughs> series on that one, they were not nice people. So the, Ren the, 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 the Medici, or the Medici, whichever way you want to pronounce it, I mean, they were behind the Renaissance. It was an explosion of art, an explosion of music, an explosion of scientific innovation. And a lot of that came by them bringing together religious folks and scientists and artists and independent business owners to start rethinking society. Essentially, they're kind of behind this whole idea, I mean, after the fact, what empirical analysis after it happened. It was all about figuring out where the intersections are between all the stuff that we know. This was a very important book for me, also to help me justify what I did with the business school. Because one of the things it says in there is that, you know, it is common sense for people to leave their job or leave whatever it is what they're doing when they're on the down low, when things are no longer interesting, or the projects aren't coming in, or the papers aren't going out, or whatever it is, I guess, what's happening in your life. And that's when you often then go to something else. I said, it's completely wrong. It's 100% wrong. You have to leave when you're at the top of your game, which is the hardest thing to do, because then the expectation is you're going to do the same thing where you're going. That was one of the things that came out of, this thing, out of this book as well. So this whole intersection space, but really not just about happenstance anymore, not just about serendipity, not just about you know, opening this door and kind of see what's behind it, but really deliberately investing in your rebirth. This is my last story. So my question was, what's next? I mean, I've done 15 years in the college, technology development, lots of very exciting applications in the field and whatnot. 10 years at the business school learning about finance and entrepreneurship, the question is, okay, I know this and I know that. What's the intersection between these two? What is going to happen? Am I going to take my business models back to engineering and build companies? Is that what I do? So what is next? At one point I was over here and I was working with the NSF. So I was, I was st still partially a part-time at Ross. I came back over here and I was appointed by the National Science Foundation to do a review ERC, Engineering Research Centers, these are these big research centers uh, that are funded across schools and departments. Stanford, uh, Berkeley, Colorado School of Mines, and a couple of other universities involved in that. Here I am at the Sheraton in downtown Palo Alto. Right? In the morning I go for breakfast, all the breakfast tables are taken, except for one. And there's this tall, six foot seven guy sitting there. I say, you mind if I share a table? I don't know, go ahead. And that was Antti Tavanainen, a Finn. We started chatting, we really hit it off. I uh, said, so what are you doing? He was an innovation guy, he was actually on a sabbatical at Stanford, out of the Research Institute of the Finnish Economy. And I told him what I was doing, you know, so I started to figure out, I know the technology side, I know the business model side, I know the finance, but I'm not quite sure where to go next. A year later, he sends me an email. And I said, Peter, I think we got an opportunity here. There is something called a Finnish Distinguished Professor. It's a FIDIPRO, FIDIPRO in name. And it would be at the Research Institute of the Finnish Economy. The objective would be to use data to figure out how we're transitioning the entire Finnish economy from what it is now to a green economy. So the entire Finnish economy to a green economy. <laughs> so there was just one catch. I said, only one? I said, yeah, you have to be here in place. I went home and I said, you guys interested in going to Finland? I said, no way, no way, no way, no way. No way. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, it's essentially pitch dark in January and... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and why would I go to, to Finland? But again, plus my kids were in a good place in high school too, so it's kind of hard to pull them out of there. 
Now I had to figure out, I said, okay, this brings together all the stuff I know about business model and finance with all my engineering tools and helping to rethink an economy. They essentially gave me, I'm not kidding you, an Excel spreadsheet with the entire Finnish economy, all companies on it. <laughs> One spreadsheet, it's a huge spreadsheet, <laughs> but all the financial data and everything else was on it. I never looked at a spreadsheet like that. After some deliberation, I talked to the kids. My daughter is the youngest, she came to me and said, Daddy will miss you, but it'll be fun for you. <laughs> That's encouragement. My wife said, at least you got the money for your sabbatical. That was a good one. <laughs> And my son was totally game too because I actually came, he came for a couple of internships. So Finland or bust. We stretched out that one year, couldn't be away from my family for one year. I stretched it out over two and a half years. But it was absolutely, totally, wickedly awesome. <laughs> I mean, essentially I was put in charge of a project where I was probably the least qualified person doing it. Because actually I had never really structured any kind of funds. I mean, I can do calculations like the next guy. I know statistics like the next guy. So I can do all of that, but structuring investment funds. What I got to work with, pension funds, with private equity groups and government bond issuers and insurance companies and venture capital, and a group of about 10, 15 people for two and a half years. But it was a deliberate choice. I said like, look, this is risk, this is make or break. I mean, I can go back to what I was doing and sort of enhance my research with my business research, but this is completely different. I had a lot of fun. It was basically stretching that side of my brain that I really hadn't been using a whole lot <laughs> in the, onto the artist's side, right? So we looked at essentially and ultimately developed a book on financial technology for industrial renewal, which was really all about using data. And there was a book that came out of the whole thing. I was in Finland for two and a half years. An entire economy we got to reset. No, we didn't reset it, but at least built funds for it to become reset and to get invested in. The question was, and now what? Am I going to go back to $300,000 NSF grants and have a 5% chance of getting funded? I can't go back to something small. I need to think big. So I came back to Michigan, and at that time, and I do have to give a lot of kudos to our current uh, chair, Jerry Lynch, who had just come in, and I said, Peter, you haven't been doing anything in CE. <laughs> I haven't been doing anything in CE. I mean, I was over at Ross. I was playing on the fringes. I want you back here. I said, okay, well, what is it what we're going to do? I said, I want you to bring all the finance back to engineering. I said, that's easier said than done. I need people to work with. I need people to engage with. I need, I said, well, let's figure something out on how we can do this. And that became the whole new smart infrastructure finance, which is now our fifth pillar in, in the strategic plan of uh, civil and environmental engineering. I still work with the business school. Uh, we set up a, a financial technology collaboratory with the School for Public Policy and everything else. Essentially, we're playing Moneyball. So if you know the movie Moneyball in the book, right? It's about uncovering hidden value through data. Right? It's a Moneyball for infrastructure. So it's a whole new way of starting to think in how we finance infrastructure, including Whitmer's roads, Michigan's roads, right? That need new money. If I would have not have thought through all these different financing models, I would not be in the place where we are now within CE. And suddenly, by the way, my merit increases have gone up. <laughs> so there was some benefits since, since uh, the days of the business school. So these are stories, and of course, these are my stories. So, but a lot of the learnings are fairly pedestrian, as in everybody can actually execute on these. One, connect with people you don't know. I don't say that you all should go chase the Star Trek conventions, but 
if that's part of what you want to do. That's great. So connect with people you don't know. Deliberately place yourself in unusual environments. It's almost like the first time you go to a conference or the first time when you become a new staff member and you go to the very first faculty meeting. You have no idea what to expect, what's going on in there. But that is the point of it. All right, so that becomes your initial learning experience. So deliberately place yourself in these environments. Engage at the edge of your knowledge comfort zone. Everybody has ideas. I mean, I used to work only with PhD students and with postdocs when I was in the business school and even through now in our department, I think there's probably like 55 or 60 master students. And really, not only the master students that I'm starting to work with, undergraduate students. I mean, I'm supporting the blockchain at Michigan undergraduate students. I, said, I need you guys to build content so we can teach it at the graduate level. I mean, everything is getting upended. It's very exciting. I've sort of really expanded my horizon in talking to people. And that is not a foreign skill. That's a skill that all of us have. And then there is, of course, differentiate. When you're different, that's good. Different is good. In the back to the financial markets, the average is not good. The tail of the distribution is good. In financial markets, we call that volatility. That it would be the same as failure or risk. But that's actually where all the opportunity is. The opportunity is not on the average. The opportunity is in the tail. And guess what? If you can do some of this and even find a little bit of a tail, man, do you attract interest from others. That also I didn't anticipate. I get all sorts of emails. So how did you find out about this? How do you find out about that? This is the story I wanted to tell. It's a story of serendipity, a story of opening, of not caring about what other people think and open and going through uh, doors that are ajar and about deliberately saying, okay, now I'm walking into a very different direction. I mean, clearly, with not blindly, I mean, it's, it's still calculated risk. The outcome in the end with the right mindset begets you this. And that ultimately is life, right? Thank you. This is a recording of an event hosted by the CID Committee, a pilot program aiming to enhance creativity, innovation, and daring, developed by staff for staff. Thanks for listening. And hey, one more thing before you go. Please subscribe to Re-Engineering Radio. And if you have a minute, drop us a review. See you next time.